Let me invite you again to turn back to the letter of Philippians. We'll be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. I want to publicly thank uh, Ben and David for stepping in last minute and um, leading us in song this morning. Uh, this, is, this comment that I'm about to give is nothing against their abilities whatsoever, but I'm so glad the psalmist, when he said, make a joyful noise to the Lord, I think it was talking about a heart condition, not necessarily the sound that, that came out. So. But thank you guys for being willing to, to step in. Appreciate that. Let me go ahead and, and read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And then this morning we'll be looking uh, at verses 12 through 18. So beginning in Philippians chapter 1, that's what the Apostle Paul says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I'm going to pray for us. Father, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 18, Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous works from your law. As we come to your word this morning, Father, we are insufficient in understanding it. But you are all sufficient by your spirit in teaching us what you have said. So, Father, I ask for your help. I ask that you would speak to us, shape and fashion us 
in the likeness of Christ because of what you have for us this morning. I ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. It was the summer of 2016, specifically the month of May and the day of the 29th, or the 29th day of May. My family and I were arriving at my home church in Connecticut for a baptismal service for my three younger cousins. Because my father's brother married my mother's sister, sort of like the situation we have with Bruce and Darlene King, okay? They're almost double cousins, and so that means they have the same grandparents on both sides, right? So we're meeting together at my home church in Connecticut. My mother's father, also being Pastor Joey's father, is the pastor of that church, and so he's going to baptize my three younger cousins, and because me and my cousins share the same grandparents, my father's parents were also making their trip over from New York to um, observe this baptismal service. Well, it got close to the start of the service, and my father's parents had yet to arrive from New York. And this was unusual because they were always early to things. The service went by and passed, and still no word from them. Later that evening, my father received a call from a police officer telling him news that my grandparents were involved in a head-on car collision, and it took my grandfather home to be with the Lord and left my grandma, who she's still with us here on this earth, to go through a couple surgeries, weeks in the hospital, and the entire summary, excuse me, the entire summer in a rehab facility. Now, you might be sitting there asking yourself, why did he start a sermon this way? Does he want us to start crying or feel sorry? Okay, I I am not trying by any means to um, manipulate you at all this morning, okay? This is a sad story. And it was sudden and shocking and devastating for our family at the time. But the reason that I tell you this story this morning is because of one individual from this circumstance that had one of the greatest impacts on my life, and that being my grandmother, who survived the, the accident. From the time of that tragedy up until now, I have never seen such unwavering joy shine from an individual like it did my grandmother. Sure, this was tragic. It was devastating. That took place specifically in my grandmother's life. But there was great rejoicing in the midst of it because her confidence in God's good and wise purposes and because of all that came out of the circumstance to bring ultimate glory to God. As we get into the sermon, I'm going to share a little bit more specifically just how her testimony impacted my life. Okay, well, As we come to Philippians chapter 1, Paul is in a circumstance That as an outside reader, we would look and say, how in the world could you have such joy and rejoicing in a circumstance like this? Paul went through circumstance after circumstance that should cripple, that should have crippled him over and over and over again spiritually, and for him to toss in the towel 
if you will, on his pursuit and duty before the Lord. And yet, in this letter to the Philippians, Paul strikes the note of joy that rings throughout the entire letter. The word joy occurs five times in this letter. The, the, the word rejoicing occurs nine times in this letter. However, this joy is not just putting on, a, putting on your best smile in front of people in the midst of terrible circumstances. This joy is a deep-seated satisfaction and contentment that comes from being found in Christ and Christ alone. In our, and in our text this morning, Paul demonstrates for us that no matter the circumstances in life, the joy that cannot be lost is the joy only found in Christ. The joy that cannot be lost is the only joy found in Christ. Now, in order for us to understand what Paul writes here, let us dive into a little context and, and background. The apostle is writing to the saints or the believers at the church of Philippi, a church that he himself started. And Paul arrived with the gospel at Philippi during his second missionary journey. And we read of this account in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas have just picked up Timothy as they went out strengthening their already begun churches in the area. And on their journey, Acts 16 tells us that Paul and Silas wanted to get into Asia and get into Bithynia, but twice the Holy Spirit prevented them or forbid them to do so. So they journeyed on in between those two locations to Troas, which was right on the, it was a port city right on the Mediterranean Sea, right across from Macedonia, and that's a key place, because it was here in Troas that Paul received a vision, often understood as the Macedonian call. There was a man from Macedonia who said to Paul in the night, in a vision, come over to Macedonia to help. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 10 says, immediately, Paul, concluding that God was calling him to go from Troas over to Macedonia, Paul and Silas and Timothy packed up their bags. They left from Troas to go over to the region of Macedonia, and they came to the leading city in Macedonia of Philippi. And it is here in Philippi that Acts 16 records us the very first converts uh, when the gospel landed, if you will, in Philippi. And most likely these very first converts were the first members of the church here in Philippi. If you remember, first God by his sovereign grace, opened Lydia's heart to say yes to the gospel when Paul preached it to her. And her whole household was baptized and offered much hospitality to Paul and let him and his co-workers come in and stay with them. If you remember the famous story of the Philippian jailer, when he believed in Christ and was baptized and his whole household came to faith in Christ. Now, although it is not known how many others were added to the church since Paul brought the gospel first there and was forced to leave Philippi, Acts chapter 16, verse 40 tells us because of intense persecution, there is one thing that is clear that you might have gathered already from our, our, our reading of, of Philippians 1 and 1 through 11, that there is a zealous and young congregation that continued to show its faithfulness to God by loving and supporting Paul. And this 
is who Paul writes to. He is writing to these believers at Philippi. Where is Paul when he's writing? Paul is in Roman imprisonment. And this key feature of this circumstance that Paul is writing from is going to be key to understanding the weight of what God is trying to teach us this morning. Oftentimes, when Paul's gospel boldness is met with Roman opposition, it often resulted in prison for Paul and his co-workers, and this is exactly what we see in the setting of Philippians 1. You'll see in verse 7, he references his imprisonment. In verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1, he references his imprisonment. In verse 17, he references his imprisonment. And later in the letter, he says he is in prison. So Paul, writing from prison, opens the letter by expressing his thanksgiving, his joy, his love that he has for these group of believers because of their partnership in the gospel. They loved and supported Paul even from miles away. Although these believers could not do ministry linked arm in arm with him, they still supported Paul unlike any other church. Philippians, the last chapter, chapter 4 and verse 15, tells us that unlike any other church, the Philippians supported Paul. These believers at Philippi had been deeply concerned. They heard news that Paul was in prison, and so they sent him a gift with one of their own members named Epaphroditus, and brought that gift to Paul, and with the knowledge of these two things, the Philippians' deep concern for Paul, and then their sending of a love gift to provide for his needs with this man, Epaphroditus, this letter of Philippians is most likely a thank you letter for the gift that they had given him. And as we'll see this morning, an update on how things were going, even in the circumstances of his imprisonment. And in the portion of the letter that we will study together this morning, Paul is letting the Philippians know. Here's his update. Here, here, is his, here is his update of how things are going in prison. He says this. The gospel of Christ is advancing because of adversity. The gospel of Christ is advancing because of adversity. Notice in verse 18 how Paul ends this section. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The joy that cannot be lost is the joy only found in Christ. We'll split up our study this morning into two sections. I want to look at uh, 12 through 14, and we'll notice how this joy that Paul had could not be taken away from him by his imprisonment. And then the second section, verses 15 through 18, that Paul's joy could not be taken from him in the midst of his hurt reputation. So imprisonment and a hurt reputation could not take Paul's joy away from him. So let's look at Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul begins here 
in this first section of assuring the Philippian believers that instead of his current imprisonment hindering his gospel work, it actually served to advance it. You can imagine, I'm sure, that the natural and responsible, or excuse me, the natural and reasonable concern of the Philippians for Paul, how imprisonment most likely would have hindered his, his ministry of keeping him from freeingly going into the synagogues and preaching the gospel as was his uh, normality when he would enter into a city. But also, the Philippians' concern most likely revolved around the fact that Paul was awaiting the outcome of his trial before the current Roman emperor that very well might have ended in his death. A few verses later, um, 19, 20, and 21, Paul expresses his confidence in verse 19. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's hopeful. He has confidence that these believers' prayer will actually work to deliver him from prison, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. But notice what he says, whether by death, or excuse me, life or by death, This very well, in Paul's mind, could have been the last thing that he wrote. But this reality of death being so close, this reality of his imprisonment could not steal Paul's joy. And it couldn't steal Paul's joy because it could not stop Paul from advancing the gospel even in the midst of his circumstance. And so Paul, with urgency seeks to communicate to these Philippian believers, hey, look, here's an encouragement for you. My current circumstances has actually caused the gospel to go forth. It's caused it to progress. It's caused it to advance rather than what the Philippian believers otherwise might have thought, actually hindering his gospel work. Far from trying to get sympathy from these Philippian believers by saying, ah, I'm in prison and the food's a little scarce and quarters are a little rough and I only get a rock to put my head on. Paul goes out of his way to make sure that these Philippian believers don't grow overly concerned for him, but rather to rejoice in what God is doing in the midst of his circumstance. That his imprisonment has not hindered the gospel work at any means. And while some might have written off Paul's ministry because he got himself into prison once again, imprisonment actually led to the progress of his ministry. And Paul tells us how, specifically how this gospel ministry had advanced. Notice the two reasons that he gives to prove this claim that the gospel had actually advanced in prison. Notice the first one in verse 13. So that, this is how this gospel has advanced so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's imprisonment served to further the gospel outside of Christ's body. It served to further the gospel outside of the Christian community. Notice this evangelism of the unbelievers. This first item of proof is that Paul has gotten the chance to share the gospel Tell these soldiers that are guarding him why he is there. He says, it has become well known. It has become clear. It has become visible through the whole imperial guard 
and among everyone else that this imprisonment is for Christ. Now, there's something that we should know, or we should note, rather, about Paul's imprisonment. That being in the kind of imprisonment that Paul was in, Paul currently had approximately an 18-inch chain around one of his wrists, and guess who was on the other side of that chain? It was one of Rome's most elite guards, this members of one of these, this is why he references this imperial guard. And this was a 24-7 thing. According to the tradition, uh, these guards often took four to six hour shifts of being Paul's glorified babysitter. Okay, there, was no, there was no escape possible. There was no privacy possible. Although he was allowed a private house of his own, it wasn't like he was in the cell with a bunch of other prisoners. Although he was allowed his private house, he was still linked to that soldier 24-7. Now, if there's one individual, I can pick on him because he's not here. There's one individual who would absolutely not even be able to think very long or be able to stand to think about having someone chained 18 inches away from them 24-7. That would be my uncle, the one that you all know. Okay. <laughs> Uh, he has always had his personal bubble between 12 to 18 inches, I would say. I remember growing up and being like five or six, and this is when both him and his brother John were living at my grandparents' house, and I would always be ready to wrestle, to hang off of, to tickle, to poke and instigate both of them. And John, who, the one who we never see because he's in the military, he is, was always loved to wrestle me up and get me riled up and stuff like that. But Joey's comment would always be, oh, I'm, a, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I'm a lover. Get away from me. Right? And he didn't actually mean, I'm a lover, not a fighter, like, come and snuggle me. He just meant, like, for the time being, don't touch me. Right? I, don't, I don't mess around. I don't tickle. I don't fight. Okay? Um, and so I don't really know where I was going with that story other than the fact that <laughs> I always got to get one of those in, you know. But what had served to be something of seemingly a quite uncomfortable situation with no privacy, actually served to be how God sovereignly moved his gospel forward. What an incredible opportunity Paul had when you look at it this way. Rotating individuals every four to six hours couldn't be any further than 18 inches apart Paul would have had access to almost every single one of them. He was there for about two years. Which eventually turned into the entire Imperial Guard hearing just why Paul was in bonds. What a gospel opportunity that Paul had. I can just imagine guard after guard taking their shift with Paul and probably thinking to themselves, this man isn't a criminal. Paul was in prison unjustly. He had done nothing wrong. The only thing he did was preach Christ, but he knew persecution was coming. These guards most certainly saw Paul's character and began to tell all the rest, exactly what Paul says in verse 13, that a man was in prison for belonging to a man named Christ. These guards very quickly came to know just exactly why Paul was in prison. Notice in uh, chapter, flip back to the back of Philippians, chapter 4 and verse 22, Paul kind of says this tongue-in-cheek. As he's giving his final greetings and his farewell, he says in verse 21, 
to these Philippian believers of updating them how things are going. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. And all the saints greet you. And he says, especially those of Caesar's household. What does he mean by this? People were coming to faith in Christ in the imperial guard because of Paul's circumstance. What Paul had was such a great ambition for the cause of Christ that even in the midst of this circumstance, no privacy whatsoever, chained to a Roman guard 24-7, 18 inches away, he told him, every single one of them, why he was in prison. And should we expect anything less than the gospel to break down the barriers of hardened hearts and save individuals? No. And this is why Paul could, even in the midst of imprisonment, say that, The joy that cannot be lost is only found in Christ. Paul's imprisonment had actually served as one of his greater evangelistic platforms to unbelievers. It has become clear. Now, in this phrase in in verse 13, when Paul says that my imprisonment is for Christ, sure, we could say that Paul would have been sharing the truth about who Jesus was and what he did to these individuals. But I think what Paul does here is he's actually making a profound statement for us, giving us the nature or what it means to be a follower of Christ. In the original language, it's actually a little little awkward. It says, my imprisonment is because I'm in Christ. So what is Paul telling us? What What was he telling these imperial guards? He was telling us of what it means to be a follower of Christ, and this is what it means. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. Following Christ means to participate in his sufferings. We should not be surprised at this at all. Christ said in, in John 15, if they hate you, know that they hated me first. And then he says later in verse 25, they hate me for no reason. Jesus says again in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted. For theirs is the kingdom. Paul says in 2 Timothy, for all those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. This is what it means to follow Christ. We should not be surprised when trouble comes for those of us who are in Christ. What has become clear to the whole imperial guard and everyone else is that Paul is in chains because he is a man of Christ. His chains were simply a manifestation of his being in Christ. And here's the reality. You and I might not experience chains. But the reality of following Christ is promised suffering. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, the fact that you are blessed when you suffer persecution, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Jesus is telling us that a true sign of those who are blessed are those who suffer and are persecuted for being in Christ. Paul was experiencing this promised suffering that actually confirmed his position in Christ and provided to advance the gospel, and this was a reason for his rejoicing. Look at verse 14. 
the second proof as to how this imprisonment actually served to advance the gospel. Not only had it an effect outside the Christian community to unbelievers, but it had an effect inside the Christian community. It served to evangelize the unbeliever, but it also served to edify the believers. Paul then turns to this second way in verse 14 and says, And most of the brothers, speaking of believers, have, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. When Paul says most there, that means almost all the believers in the location surrounding where he was in prison. They were all spurred on to share the gospel boldly because of Paul's imprisonment. Now, perhaps in the day and age that they lived in, perhaps most of of the believers were currently timid because of the major Roman influence of that day. At the time of the early 60s, it's not 1960, but that's nothing in front of the 6-0, okay? In the time of the early 60s, Emperor Nero's madness had peaked, and his persecution of the church was rampant. And so you can imagine this understandably led them to be fearful and timid when it came to sharing the gospel of Christ. And their general trend was to kind of stand back so they don't have to face that hostility. They would face that hostility with a little bit of shyness, fearing that their imprisonment might end up in their taking their freedoms away to sharing the gospel freely. And the reality of it is, for these believers then and for us now, we have no idea what lies ahead of us, whether we're in chains now or we're chains in the future. No matter what, what lies ahead in, in where we live, we have no idea what's coming. But what we do know is that our job is to be faithful to Christ and the task that he has given to us. And that is the making and maturing of disciples, which necessitates gospel proclamation. Don't forget how in communist China, the church grew massively and was purified, all with little to no freedom at all in comparison to what we experience here in the U.S. You and I never know how God will overrule the apparent and seeming obstacles that hinder the gospel and actually use them for the advancement of the gospel, just like he did in Paul's situation. And as these believers stood back and watched the testimony of Paul, how God was overruling prison to advance the gospel in providing for Paul's needs, sustaining him, supporting him, giving him an incredible outreach among the imperial guard, and the rest of those who heard Paul's testimony were strengthened. Paul must have been thinking to himself, man, who in the world is somewhere in a church that I started praying that God would reach the imperial guard in Rome? Why did it have to be me? Right? But we see, even in this imprisonment, if Paul could, if God could provide for Paul in prison the way that he did, then he could provide for these believers who were not in prison, they were actually free, he could provide them with the boldness with the fearlessness that they could go out and share the gospel as well. Paul's strength actually became these believers' strength. The example of Paul's life touched these believers to the point of empowering them to share the gospel boldly 
and without fear. Going back to my opening illustration, from the summer that my grandfather went home to be with the Lord, I can't think of a life that has fueled my zeal and passion for Christ more than the life and testimony of my grandma. Throughout the entire accident, and even up until now, her unwavering, her unwavering joy and confidence in the Lord has only been magnified as she has agreed to take every opportunity that she can to share Christ through this tragic circumstance. She was able to give her testimony to all the nurses and doctors that came in to work on her. She always had her thick John MacArthur study Bible laying right by her nightstand, ready to tell anybody who wanted to know what it was about. After she recovered, she got asked to speak to at a few conferences, and she willingly took the opportunity. She got the chance to speak at a few high schools to share the circumstance and the testimony and other engagements that, that she would willingly uh, take. And she has told me on multiple occasions that her pain and her suffering has turned out for the glory of Christ, and in that, she rejoiced. What a model of true joy that my grandma was able to have an effect on Sure, my grandfather might have been taken away from her for a season. But Christ was not taken from her. And so therefore, her joy was not taken from her. And because of the spread of the gospel, even in her circumstance, her joy continues to grow. So as Paul proves here in this first section, that his imprisonment has not hindered his gospel testimony, but it actually had advanced, his joy remained. And in the second section from 15 to verses 17, Paul's going to say, even in the midst of my reputation being hurt, I still will rejoice. Pick up in verse 15. Out of this uh, group in verse 14, most of these brothers, the ones who have become confident to speak the, the, the word of the Lord with boldness and fear. He says in verse 15 that out of this group, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul gives us two groups of people in verse 15 that were proclaimers of Christ. Some with pure motives, goodwill and love for Paul, but some, however, were motivated by jealousy and rivalry or strife, and later in verse 17, selfish ambition. And notice in verse 15 that both of these groups preached Christ. They were not preaching a false Jesus. They were not preaching a false gospel. They were preaching the life, death, resurrection, and reign of the Messiah, Jesus. And although Paul is very much concerned for correct doctrine and right theology, this is not what he sets out to scold these mixed motivated preachers for. Paul points out their motives. 
And in verse 15, both of these groups are introduced. Look at the first one. Look at this, these mixed motivated preachers who preach out of envy. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Notice how Paul describes this group. These believers are preaching Christ out of envy and strife. Envy, this idea of jealousy. For preachers of Christ, what is there to be jealous about? I think Paul is talking about these preachers of Christ in relationship to him are preaching out of jealousy. What was there to be jealous about in relationship to Paul? Oh, his giftedness, his following, his blessings, his success, his high esteem. I guess that Paul was in the seat that these preachers wanted to be in, and they were jealous because of it, and jealous to the point of rivalry, this idea of strife, contention, creating conflict. And these men's jealousy rose to the place where they were willing to do anything it took. Notice in verse 17, thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. And while these individuals still preached the true gospel of Christ, they did it out of an impure heart. They, they would get upset that someone is more, more of a successful evangelist or a writer or a pastor or a teacher, and then they seek to elevate themselves while putting the other person down through slander, through accusation, through criticism, and any means to tear Paul down. What were these individuals doing to fulfill these envious and rivalry that was coming out of their house? Well, Paul doesn't tell us specifically. Paul does not say, but most likely they could have been pouring, pointing out his circumstances and say, look, he wound up in prison. His ministry is now squelched because of his chains. Or they might have been saying, look, Paul once experienced the blessing of God by being able to freely preach the gospel, but now look at his chains. God must be punishing him for some type of sin. This is not indicated at all. I'm just throwing out some suggestions of why they would be coming after him, preaching against Paul in jealousy and rivalry. These preachers knew that the stock of a minister of Christ is whether or not he can be believed or trusted. And so they did everything in their power to tear his reputation down. If these believers could malign Paul in such a way that people would no longer follow him, but follow them, then they would do it. The bottom line of these mixed-motivated preachers was to discredit Paul, and that is what drove them. But there were some who did it out of goodwill, out of pure motives. Notice in verse, the end of verse 15, but others from goodwill. And in verse 16, the same group. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So while there were some with mixed motives, there were some out of goodwill. Preaching Christ out of goodwill, meaning that they were, they were satisfied with the circumstance that Paul was in. They were content with what God was doing in Paul's life, even in the midst of his chance. And Paul goes on to describe this group by love as their driving motivation to preach Christ, which is in direct contrast to those preaching out of jealousy and strife. Notice what else Paul says of these purely 
motivated individuals. He says that they preach Christ out of love. How did they preach Christ out of love? It's because they knew that Paul had been appointed for the defense of the gospel. They knew that being in Christ, this is what Paul was called to. He was called to defend the true gospel with all of his life, no matter where that brought him in life. They knew that God was in control of Paul's current circumstance in prison and how it was actually working to advance the gospel of Christ. These preachers that were motivated by love knew that the reason Paul was in prison is because God put him there, because of his faithfulness to preach the gospel. And rather than making reasons for why Paul was in prison to try to tear him down like these other individuals, these preachers of love knew that Paul was in prison because of his faithfulness to exalt Christ. Paul, in a sense, is saying, these individuals are preaching Christ with love and compassion and sympathy towards me in prison, knowing that Paul is God's man, destined to faithfully fulfill his duty. He was put here for the defense of the gospel. And while this group had a proper perspective on Paul's imprisonment, they had a proper perspective of Paul's imprisonment because they thought rightly about God. They had good theology. They understood that God was sovereign even over the circumstances that Paul was in, and he was actually using it to advance the gospel. While on the other hand, these mixed-motivated preachers had their agenda of jealousy and rivalry, speaking of Paul, taking it as an opportunity to tear Paul down, to elevate themselves, and this group in and of itself was loveless and lacked the goodwill towards Paul. Notice the last thing that Paul says of these preachers with mixed motivations in, in, in verse 17. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in prison. Paul makes sure and I think this is just interesting, once again, to clarify that these preachers are preachers of the truth of Christ. They just do it from selfish ambition, which is one of the worst things that I can think of the Apostle Paul telling about another believer, that they live their life out of selfish ambition. They're preaching the gospel for their own agenda. Selfish ambition comes from this idea of meaning to work for pay, which in and of itself, working for pay isn't a bad concept at all. But a man who only works for pay works from a very low motive, a very self-seeking one indeed. And this individual is only out to elevate himself, his prestige, his gain, his glory, his own advancement, and he doesn't care who he steps on in the process. And these individuals who were teaching and preaching the gospel, they knew just what to do. Man, if they could just step on Paul, they would rise to the top. So they saw 
Paul's imprisonment as their shining moment to step on him and advance their own fame and lessen Paul's. And the text tells us that they thought that they could hurt Paul by his behavior, by, excuse me, by their behavior while he was in prison. These individuals' goal wasn't to exalt Christ by preaching him. It wasn't to protect their church from harm. It wasn't to evangelize the lost. It wasn't to stand for the truth of God's word. It was to irritate the man that they were jealous of and tear down his reputation so that people wouldn't go to him, but rather to them. I can't imagine Paul's disheartened heart. Paul would call these individuals brothers, preachers of Christ. And yet they would turn on him because of impure and selfish motives. And you're probably asking yourself, I ask myself, is even studying this, I might think to myself, could these individuals truly be proclaiming Christ with such impure motives and still be proclaiming truth? And the answer is yes. An individual with jealousy, envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition in his heart can still be used by God. Probably not as effectively. And here's the reason why. Because the truth is more powerful than the package that it comes in. An old commentator once said, the power lies in the gospel, not the gospeller. What he mean to communicate here is that the, the power lies in what is preached, not the preacher. All the listener does is hear the preacher. He cannot see the motives of the heart. And this is why Paul can say in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, whether with a mixed motivation, jealousy, rival, selfish ambition, or in love, in goodwill, Christ is preached. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. In imprisonment, in his hurt reputation, Paul did not lose his joy. Because Paul had a joy that he could not lose, and that joy was found in Christ. This is why Paul can say in verse 18, what does it matter? Paul basically is responding to this, these false teachers with, so what? The only thing that matters is Christ is proclaimed. And that is taking place, no matter the motive and Paul says, in that I rejoice. Did Paul's unjustly slandered reputation steal his joy? No. And this is what is so important about his testimony of joy. You couldn't steal it. No length of imprisonment, no amount of mud on his reputation, his, his, his reputation was dra dragged through. As long as Christ and his gospel was advanced into the hearts of his people, Paul was Rejoicing. Paul didn't care who got the credit. He didn't care what happened to him. He lived and breathed for the proclamation of Christ by the advancement of the gospel. Whether in freedom, in prison, whether loved or slandered, what does Paul do? He doesn't quit. He doesn't lash back. And the end of verse 18, 
he doesn't lose his joy. Because Christ is proclaimed and the gospel is always advancing. This is what Paul cared about. This is what he lived for. So what does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? How can you and I learn from Paul's example of a joy that was not lost even in the midst of circumstances that you and I probably might never experience? Well, let me challenge you first to put your joy in the person of Christ and the advancement of his gospel. Because once you have Christ, you can never lose the advance of the gospel will not stop. To put your joy in Christ and the advance of his kingdom, this life and all it has to offer will never be able to steal that joy away from you. The greatest thing that this life can offer you is death, which is to go and be with the one in whom your joy is found. That's what Paul comes to in the, in the end of chapter 1. To live is Christ. If I'm here with you, I'm going to continue to serve him. But to die, it's great gain. Are you here this morning? Maybe your joy is not found in Christ. Maybe you have never entered into a relationship with him. I encourage you. God has provided a means to be restored to himself in the person and work of Christ. And if you would understand your rebellion before him and, and run from that and trust in Christ as your only hope, you can receive the contentment and satisfaction that is found only in Christ and Christ alone. For the believer here this morning, are you rising up every morning and intentionally placing your joy in Christ? Okay, Paul, Paul is not just putting on his best smile in the midst of a bad situation and writing about it so that these Philippians can go to sleep at night. Paul can write this way because he knew that where his joy was found could never be taken from him. This is not, being, this is not Paul being wishful, but deeply convinced that God had worked out his salvation and he is continuing to work out Paul's salvation as he grows in Christ, experiencing whatever trials come his way. This is not that Paul is too heavenly-minded to be in touch with reality or that he sees things with rosy-tinted glasses, but rather Paul sees everything in light of the bigger picture. And that bigger picture fully emblazoned on our screen at Calvary, there is nothing that does not fit into that picture. Life, death, imprisonment, a hurt reputation, it is all worth it because it is for Christ. And in him, your joy, your contentment, your satisfaction in this life cannot be shaken. The gospel was centered to everything that Paul did. And this served as his means of joy in the midst of intense adversity. I'd like to challenge you this morning to make the advance of the gospel your greatest ambition. 
This is what Paul kept on his mind every single day in the midst of every single circumstance. His greatest ambition was Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go into all nations and make and mature disciples of Christ. That was his goal. This was his key, if you will, to have joy in every single circumstance because nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. Nothing can take away Paul's relationship that he had with Christ. And it is in this that Paul rejoiced. What is your greatest ambition this morning? Fame? Money? To get married one day? To have grandchildren? To finally achieve some promotion at work? None of these ambitions are wrong. But it's when those ambitions become so important to us that they cloud our vision on who we are as Christ's ambassador. They cloud us from what our greatest ambition should be. That should be the advance of the gospel. Paul's gospel ambitious testimony is definitely one to be emulated. I want to leave you with two theological truths, okay? We're not, we're not diving into systematic theology, okay? Everybody, you can, you can take your seatbelt off, right? No matter the circumstances that you face in this life, nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God can build his church with you or without you, but if you're in him, you best get on board. Nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. That was the first one. The second one is this. The gospel is advanced through the proclamation of God's gospel through God's people. That is how God's kingdom is built. The message of who Christ is and what he did, proclaimed by you and I as followers of his, that is how the gospel progresses. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15 says, how are they supposed to believe if they have not heard? How are they supposed to hear if no one preaches to them? And how, how is someone going to preach to them if they are not sent? And Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of Christ to those around them. So I challenge you this morning, if your joy is not found in Christ, the circumstances of life will, once you rise to the peak of whatever ambition you are achieving, you're going to fall hard to the bottom. But in Christ, there is joy that cannot be shaken. Whether sickness or death or pain or fear or sorrow or sadness or loneliness or the mundane of the week or in celebration, are you actively looking for ways to lift up Christ by advancing his gospel? I would challenge you. I know that you and I are not in chains, okay? Our reputation might not be intentionally slandered at this moment, okay? But that is an example that even in this circumstance, Paul's joy was not lost, and his greatest ambition was the furtherance of the gospel. So any circumstance in between that you and I 
experience in this life. May we actively seek to follow Christ faithfully. Have an example that's worthy of the gospel and to share it boldly this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just the example that we have in Scripture, the example of Christ. And although the example of Paul seems like such, such a high bar to, to attain, Father, remind us that we do not have to experience suffering in this life to advance the gospel. But Father, when we do experience it, help us to keep our mind fixed on Christ. That no matter what circumstance comes our way, our joy can be found in him. May we in the workplace, at the gym, in suffering, at home, in our families, may we always be looking to advance the gospel. For there is joy found in that truth right there that nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. Thank you for salvation in your son. Thank you for um, giving us a relationship with yourself and, and calling us to serve you. We are such an undeserving people to serve such a great master. I ask that.